How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're looking at the human cost of climate disruption. Many people think of polar bears or melting glaciers at the mention of carbon pollution released by burning fossil fuels. The connection to human health doesn't get as much attention as environmental concerns, but it should. Rising temperatures and seas will also increase risk to the well-being of people in the United States, and even more so in developing countries. Many of those risks are connected to severe weather events that will deliver a one-two punch of too much water or not enough water. Over the next hour, we'll discuss keeping people and communities healthy in a world with a crazy climate. We will include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club meeting today in Lafayette. Our two guests are a doctor and a lawyer. Andrew Guzman is a professor at UC Berkeley Law School and author of Overheated, The Human Cost of Climate Change. And Richard Joseph Jackson is a pediatrician and professor at the UCLA School of Public Health. He's a former director of environmental health at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you both uh, for for coming. Uh, Andrew Guzman, tell us briefly how a law professor came to write a book about the human impacts of climate disruption. Right, so climate is climate change is thought to be a scientific topic, at least most obviously, which I, which certainly it is. But uh, the reason we care about climate change, at least most of us, isn't because of the physical changes it's going to have in the world. It's because it's going to affect us. Uh, and so I felt that, one, that wasn't clear enough in forms that were accessible to people, but also the things that law professors and economists study, I mean economists as well, are um, human institutions, how society reacts to challenges, how, we're, how, how people are affected by changing situations. So that's obviously all part of climate change. And so the book's an attempt to take, to bridge the gap between what the scientists and others tell us are going to happen to the physical world um, and, and then take that information and, and move it to explain what's going to happen to human beings um, and in the hopes that this will motivate people to act, to um, become political agents to support change. And Richard Jackson, what do you say to people who say, well, climate change, that's an environmental concern. It's about butterflies and polar bears. How do you respond to someone who says frame it as a health issue. I and my family lived in Lafayette until 1994. I was offered the job as the director of the National Center for Environmental Health at CDC. It's a big job. We worried about everything very tiny, like molecules and atoms and viruses, all the way up to very large issues. And I did that for about 10 years. And over time, this issue of the planet's changing. One of my friends would say, You know, the mosquitoes in the backyard are now these different kinds of mosquitoes that carry malaria and dengue. This is in Atlanta. And uh, we've seen um, the growth zones move up about 150 miles, 200 miles, just in my child's lifetime. And so when I left CDC and came back to California and was teaching at Berkeley, I decided I'd do full immersion into the issue of climate and health. I thought I could knock it off in six months, and I bet Andrew would agree. And it took, took me several years to begin to master the, the size of this literature. I'm going to assert that climate change will be the biggest health issue 
of my grandchild's lifetime and my great-grandchildren's lifetime. And I will assert that we will be looking at somewhere in the range of a half a billion lives being affected profoundly by the impacts of climate change. And how about today? Are people being affected today? Because it's often framed as a legacy issue. The president did it recently when he talked about climate change, children, grandchildren. But we know from Hurricane Sandy and other events uh, and rising temperatures all over that it's here today. Are there health impacts today? In uh, moved to Atlanta in 94. In 95, we got a call from the coroner of Chicago, and they said, we're, we're, we're ordering more freezer trucks. We cannot take care of all the bodies they are bringing in. And over time, about 500 people died from the huge heat stress, the heat wave in Chicago. Mainly people that were already kind of frail, either very young, very old, maybe mentally challenged, physically challenged. The buildings were wrong for that kind of weather. Blacktop buildings that just baked in the sun and people anxious about their environment. The windows were nailed shut. Um, In 2004, we saw... we. 70,000 people in Europe died from the huge heat wave. And California itself, we had a big heat wave. And you remember, I think it was 2005, 2006, where it was hitting 115 out here. And you can't work in those kind of temperatures. You, you are at risk, particularly if you have an environment where you can't get air conditioning. So it's here now. And who's most at risk for these types of impacts? Well, I think it is, you know... If you've got money in your pocket, you've got an air conditioner, you don't have a brownout, um, you don't have to do hard labor on a hot day, um, you're not going to have the risk as someone who's less educated. Uh, we've had, we always have a couple of deaths in farm workers every year in California, at least in the past. Um, it's very hard to be out there bent over picking strawberries in 105, 110 degree heat. Andrew Guzman, let's look a little bit at the history. You write in your book about some incidences of uh, sort of uh, disease and, and collapse, et cetera. Uh, the first one I'd like to, to talk about is, is you write about the Khmer Kingdom and sort of 30-year droughts. And, and so let's talk about that story. Sure. So this is a, a kingdom that flourished for hundreds of years uh, in what is now Cambodia and uh, then quite quickly uh, collapsed. And as far as anybody can tell, at least the reports as uh, scholars and others have investigated, uh, the, a triggering event, important triggering event seemed to be uh, climate change, and they had a very sophisticated irrigation system that seems to have failed them, which created internal tensions because people who didn't have water then had were unhappy, and there was so internal unrest, um, and there was less food, which weakened the state, and eventually uh, the Khmer Kingdom was overrun by one of its neighboring kingdoms, and that was the end, and that was uh, a kingdom that was around for 600 years that, that seemed to have gone from near the height of its power to gone in a hundred in a century um, as this climatic event overtook them. And that was not a human-caused climatic event. That's part of a natural right. variation, but it's an example of how droughts can, can exactly. lead to the decline of civilizations. Richard Jackson, anything to add to that? You know, um, I talk a lot about, you know, if it gets hot, we're going to be in danger. If we have more mosquitoes that carry malaria and dengue, we're going to be in more danger. But in many ways, I think the social disruption that Andrew has just reflected on when suddenly a million or 10 million people have lost their fresh water, have lost their food supplies, have lost the political stability of where they're living, and begin to have to move either in their own country or to another country to stay alive. And uh, I, I think in my grandchild's lifetime, they're going to see a great deal of this. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. 
Let's talk about Darfur because that may yeah. be an example of where sure. actually uh, you know, a drought did lead to a climate war. Or right, a, and so a factor. Yeah, let me say first that you know the specific categories in which things fall don't matter a whole lot. But if um, if you are struck by a bullet that has a bad effect on your health, and so you know when you think about health effects, all of that ends up getting included. Um, and Darfur is arguably a climate change conflict in the sense that. Nomads and farmers were, were coexisting moderately well, not without tension, but moderately well for many years, where the farmers would allow the nomads uh, and their, their herds to use their wells because there was enough water. And then uh, drought comes along for a period of time, and farmers do what anybody would do in that situation. They had wells on their land, and they fenced them off, and they didn't let the nomads use them. So then the nomads had a problem. The nomads wanted to use the water, and you get a conflict that then escalates into the conflict uh, that we all learn about as Darfur, you know, that we learn about uh, in the region with all of the other horrible consequences, including genocide. Um, and that's not, that's how these conflicts are likely to come about. They're not, climate change is not going to create brand new conflicts. They're going to take existing situations that are tense, but hopefully manageable. Think Israel and its neighbors, think India, Pakistan, think lots of other places like that around the world. And they're going to make them much more dangerous. They're just going to, it's like putting a vice on an existing crisis. There's no guarantee it'll flame up, but it makes it more likely. And one uh, thing you talk about in your book, which is interesting, obviously Syria, Turkey, Iraq in the, in the news a lot lately. There's actually some water tensions going on there underneath that, that may be contributing to some of the tensions there. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so uh, Turkey is engaged in a large water project uh which is intended to do sensible things along its southern border, basically provide water and, and uh, better conditions for millions of people in Turkey. Uh, but the countries south of Turkey uh, receive enormous share of their total water supply from the Tigris, Tigris and Euphrates rivers that come out of Turkey. Uh, and those, uh, so that's already a stressor, right? That is, the, the developments in Turkey are going to use up more water, so there'll be less to the south. Then layer climate change on that, and suddenly it's not a fixed amount of water that has to be shared. It's a diminishing amount of usable water that has to be shared, combined with Turkey doing something to hold up the water. And it's not hard to see how there's a conflict, because if you're in Iraq, say, um, it's really important that you get more water from Turkey. If you're just joining us, we're talking about climate change with Andrew Guzman, professor at UC Berkeley Law School, and Richard Joseph Jackson, professor at the UCLA School of Public Health. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about one more historic uh, incident. Uh, Andrew Guzman, you write about the Spanish flu, which killed between 40 and 70 million people uh, during the Great War, World War One, and then we'll pivot to how those sorts of things may happen uh, in a climate-disrupted world. Sure. So uh, the flu obviously emerges uh, the way flus emerge, which is always a little bit mysterious, um, but a, a virus becomes capable of passing from human to human and, and, uh, and is lethal. But what World War One did for the flu was it created a set of situations that made it easy. So it gathered huge, very large numbers of mostly men and boys in military camps. It gathered large populations in cities. Uh, that is, people came from the country to the city to work in the wartime uh, industries. And so large sets of people in, relative, in less sanitary conditions than before, mixing immunities, and the flu was able to travel quickly in those populations. And then you take those same people and you move them around because when the soldiers leave the military camps where they're trained, obviously they get on boats to go over to Europe, they go to camps in the U.S., they're in constant movement. And so out of uh, a flu that, that is thought to have started in Kansas, uh, we get the Spanish flu, which travels all over the world uh, and ends up killing uh, 2 to 3% of the world's population. And 
you know, not, it's hard, you can't really reverse engineer whether it would have happened absent the war, but the likelihood of containing it would have been higher. And then the question is, the relevance of that to climate change is, as people get dis- displaced from their homes, where are they going to go? Where they're going to go into cities, and maybe they're going to go into refugee camps. Replicating that reality where you have large numbers of people, poor sanitary conditions, uh, different immunities, and constant movement. And so it's not going to make a virus spring up. It's not going to cause a virus to leap from an animal species to to humans. But if such a virus comes along, as happens from time to time, we will have all the sort of dry straw and kindling ready for the flame to erupt. And then that virus will be able to spread much more quickly and more effectively than it would absent climate change. I want to reflect quickly on what Andrew just said, that I worked on the India-Bangladesh border on smallpox eradication in the 1970s. And... People saw the conflict on that border as a religious conflict, the Hindu and the Muslim, but in truth, it really was about resources. And it is very fragile with the Brahmaputra River depending on the Himalayan glaciers, the Ganges depending on them as well. When that begins to change with the rising sea level in the Bay of Bengal, um, it may be called a religious conflict, but it's really going to be exactly what you're talking about. It's going to be about climate and energy and water. And those Himalayan glaciers, the water towers of Asia, are are dwindling. As are the glaciers in America. The Sierra snowpack isn't getting any bigger. It's getting smaller. And that's well, where we get a lot of water. We'll come back to the to California impacts in the Sierras. But first, I want to ask about the avian flu, which is a, a, a swine flu, avian flu. We've seen a couple of these recently. Uh, I don't know if they rise to the level of, of epidemics or pandemics. But in the case of the avian flu, decisive government action by the government of Hong Kong to slaughter fowl quickly, uh, probably stop that from getting really bad. So, Richard Jackson, uh, are we better prepared these days than, than in the case of the Spanish flu or the case of the Khmer where they didn't have technology? Or is the international health system ready to deal with climate-heightened uh, pandemics? Our surveillance system to detect stuff going on is much, much better. The ability to analyze a virus and see what type it is, is far better. The information moves around the world. I would say some of the obstacles have really been political. Uh, The countries that are remaining with polio still are Nigeria, Pakistan, the ones that have the most civil unrest and the most difficult places for people to work. So I think the labs are better. The analytic abilities are better. We'll probably have better antivirals. But um, we better have better methods because people are going into environments where uh, you're exposed to animal, we call them zoonoses, animal uh, infections of various kinds. Uh, they spread readily. Um, I think the other issue with these is um, the governments have really got to cooperate worldwide. The labs have to be cooperating worldwide. I think it's much better, but it's people are moving around so fast, it's very difficult. We talked In fact, about my students went to see the movie Contagion. They said, oh, Dr. J, um, is that how you imagine it would be? I said, oh, no. I imagine it'd be much worse. Worse than Hollywood uh, doomsday movies. Okay, we brought you here for a nice evening in Lafayette today. We'll lift, lift you up. Um, so, water impacts: too much water, too little water. Let's talk about waterborne diseases uh, and and how that may impact public health, either after disasters. Dr. Jackson. Does anyone know what the leading cause of death in California was in the year 1900? It was malaria. There's a malaria cemetery up in Sacramento. 
And the Central Valley of California was loaded with malaria and, and lakes and swamps. And basically engineering um, helped this go away and the construction of the Delta and uh, many other things. By the way, one of the earliest public health programs in California the vector control programs, and there's a couple pennies on every one of your tax bills because they are kept sacred and protected. Um, and you want to be out killing the mosquito larvae in February and March. That's when you control it. Spraying chemicals in the environment in August and September is worthless. So the, the prevention programs have been put in place. On the other hand, we're seeing new, not really new, but species of mosquitoes that we call vectors that are pretty good at carrying malaria, dengue, West Nile virus, are moving further and further north. So um, the, the insect vectors are changing over time. Could we be facing this? Yes. Um, I think, again, with many of these people that are already fragile are going to be at greater risk. And how about someone who lives in Lafayette or Piedmont or Mill Valley who thinks, well, I'm not by the water, I have a comfortable lifestyle, maybe I'll be insulated from these climate impacts. Is that true or falling? It's somewhat true. Is I'd rather be there than in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa. But so, what are you going to get? You're going to get a water shortage in California when this year, as this year's snowpack disappears. That's 35% of our water. Um, you're going to see food prices spike because half the world's population lives in the water basin, the mountain glaciers, all of which are going to go are going away. So, food prices will spike, which, if you uh, are wealthy, is higher prices. If you're middle class in a global sense you have a real hard choice. You've got to decide how to allocate scarce resources, that is shelter or food, food or water, food or health. If you're poor, in a, in a, in a worldwide sense, not in the American sense, where poor is not as poor as it is globally, if you're poor in a global sense, you can't buy food. And that doesn't go well. So absolutely, you're better off wealthy, you're better off uh, in, a, in a, a wealthy country which has more resources, you're better off uh, further from the equator. But there's a, one shouldn't confuse a relative performance with an absolute performance. It won't make you feel any better when other people have it worse if, you, if, if you're suffering too, if there's economic difficulties in the United States, significant economic difficulties, if there's significant conflict, not conflict, I don't mean violent conflicts, but political battles over resources. If uh, the, there are more storms like Hurricane Sandy that, that our tax dollars are funding, if the, the Midwest is in drought as, it's been, as it was this last year, uh, diminishing our food supply and our economy, right? All those things are going on as they will be. It will be true that we will be better off than sub-Saharan Africa, but we will not be well off. I mean, I state something pretty strongly. If you ask the average person who's a health professional, they talk about somebody in a white coat. And the difference in lifespans of Americans from 1900, it's increased 30 years. Five of those years have come from white coats the things that doctors and nurses and surgeons do. And the other 25 years have come from public health programs, and I would incorporate immunization as that program. But the rest of it is infrastructure. It's how you provide people with clean water, clean food, safe environments, and those are the things that really have generated the enormous benefits. Those are done as public enterprises. They're not done as individual enterprise. And public enterprise has got to think about What's the well-being of the whole population? You're not well if your poor brother-in-law has got tuberculosis. You're not well if your cousin's got some enteric disease, intestinal disease that's being spread by bad water. And so for 100 years, we understood that we're only as well as our community. And, and we seem to forget this, that we're, if we're armored in air conditioning and a nice car, 
that our health is dependent on everyone else's. And does the public health uh, establishment in the United States, is it getting funding to make to do research and, and communications around this, connecting the climate disruption with public health, or has that been cut off by Congress because it's so political? It, it, you know, I was in a – above me were all political people in the year two – after year 2000, and we were frankly not allowed to speak about climate change, even though we were the CDC – and we were under orders uh, not to speak about it. Uh, and one of my colleagues actually got fired for asserting that climate change was a public health issue. That has gone away. And I think the reality is science is best when people can argue about it. And to make it illegal or wrong for someone to speak about something they're worried about from a public policy standpoint is outrageous to me. So what should California do to protect its citizens and recognize the, the potential risks to human health from climate change? So, Andrew Guzman? Yeah, I think the answer here is simple, but a little bit unsatisfying. Um, there's only one remedy, and that's reducing the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And, and the only pragmatic way to do that that we're aware of now is to reduce our emissions. Um, now, no one entity, not even China, frankly, by itself, can change, can fix this. Um, but it can't happen without the United States. And so... It's true. I mean, it's harder to think in terms of California. California can impact the United States. California is being a model for the United States in important ways. It is leading in important ways. Um, but I actually think the fight is in Washington, D.C. And the, the fight is get the United States of America up off the couch, fixing its own, getting its own house in order, and then going out into the world and persuading other countries, especially Europe, who's pretty persuadable. China is a little hard to figure out. Uh, Russia, Japan... India, if you get those six, you've got over 70% of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. Uh, you get those six countries on the, to the table and you get them thinking about a serious, meaningful plan to reduce emissions. That's the only path to, to a solution. Uh, and, and the thing about it being the only path is you shouldn't confuse that with it being an easy path. But until the United States decides to do this, it won't happen because Europe doesn't have the international political uh, uh, power or influence to make it happen. China doesn't have a will to make it happen. China doesn't have international credibility to make it happen. The United States is the only country that can do this. And as long as the United States decides to not take action, it won't happen. And so that the president the other day uh, spoke about climate change was terrific. The things he wants to do are exactly the right things to do if the president has to act alone, as he does at the moment. He can act internationally in limited ways. Uh, It would be far better if the federal government in its entirety, we're behind this. It would open up a much wider set of things for the government to do internally and a much wider set of things to do internationally and would actually give us a chance of finding a way to, to, to turn down the rate at which our emissions are growing. He didn't really talk about it as a public health issue, and many people don't. There's still a perception that climate is about grandchildren and polar bears. It's not about me and my lungs today. Right. So could that framing help provide some more political momentum? Richard Jackson? You know, I read through the president's statement yesterday, and the first paragraph or two is about asthma and lung disease. So 40 years ago, and the people in this room will agree with this, there were people in Los Angeles that probably didn't know there were mountains. There were planes that were turned around because they could not see the runway, and I'm not exaggerating. And he did reference his time in college in Los Angeles when he couldn't see that, yeah. So the average blood lead, this lead was in the gasoline, the average blood lead was about 22 in Americans in the year 1970. It's now less than one. 
So by getting rid of lead and gasoline, we are able to put in the catalytic converters. The catalytic converters have caused an enormous improvement in air quality. Of course, we have five times as many cars, so it's not as good as it could be. But I want to make a big point here. California has very much been on the cutting edge of a lot of the improvements we have seen in air quality. And you've noticed that cars are still going along. We're doing pretty well. You know, we, we have decent cars. About two-thirds of all of our air pollution, I'm sorry, all of our greenhouse gases is coming from buildings. And California has basically flatlined its its electricity consumption since the 1970s because of increased efficiency, refrigeration, air conditioners, et cetera, increasing insulation, better windows. These policy standards that we put in place are now being imitated around the world. And we are very much a leader, and I hope we continue because it's really important. If you're just joining us on the radio, Richard Joseph Jackson is professor at the UCLA School of Public Health. Our other guest today at Climate One is Andrew Guzman, professor at UC Berkeley Law School. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the dark side of some of the clean energy uh, technologies. Uh, it's possible that a nickel metal hydride uh, lithium-ion batteries for electric cars could have some health impacts. The uh, Chemicals used to make solar panels that are on my roof and many others in the audience have some pretty nasty chemicals. So we might be trying to solve the climate problem while also creating some public health problems, Dr. Jackson. By the end of the 1970s, the United States was putting about $6 billion into energy research. In the early 1980s, it dropped to nothing, and we did nothing for energy research for almost 20 years. We are way behind. We absolutely, absolutely need really powerful, really effective batteries to store energy in. So, you know, your roof is producing lots of electricity on a sunny day like today, but you need to be able to store that and be able to use it. So our technology is really backward. I would completely agree with you that our batteries are inadequate today. Our solar panels are too expensive and aren't generating enough and need to be more benign. But we often stumble in the beginning of any new technology until we get it right. But we cannot back away from doing this. Right. I didn't mean to say we should back away, just that sometimes there's a, a, a shadow side. Andrew Guzman? So it's true. So, so um, the economist in me wants to say you never get anything without a trade-off. There's no free lunch. Um, one of the luxury, one of the few luxuries we have, I think, when talking about climate change, is that the problem is so acute and so immediate that we are we almost have to ignore, or at least we can be confident that some of the costs connected to certain solutions are smaller than what we get from implementing them. So. Uh, I don't in any way want to deny that any solution you propose is going to come with costs, uh, including you know, a carbon tax comes with an economic cost. Right? It's a myth that there's not going to be any cost. But the key is that the cost is worth paying. That is, the, the, what you're getting for it is worth the price. And so that's true in an environmental context, at least to the, within the scope of my knowledge about uh, potential solutions, the ones I'm familiar with. If there are, to the extent there are environmental consequences, as there always are, they're smaller than the environmental consequences of business as usual. And so we have to pick the best among the options in front of us. And uh, it would be insane to wait for one that is free. Is it true, Andrew Guzman, that agricultural productivity may actually increase in a warmer world where uh, suddenly crops can be, corn can be grown in Canada? No, I don't think that's true. Uh, it is true that there will be some... Uh, increase in productivity in some places. But it's, it seems pretty clear that'll be swamped by agricultural losses elsewhere. And uh, there's 
several things going on. One is just that the, the climate, meaning uh, temperature and precipitation, uh, will change in various places. In some places, it'll get more friendly. So Canada and Russia are obvious candidates for that, and there will be some of that. Uh, it'll get less friendly in other places, like the Central Valley, perhaps. Um, but there's other stuff going on, too, which is we have... Uh, we don't live where we live by accident. We live where we live because there's water, basically. Um, and when... Now I'm going to go back to mountain glaciers. When the glaciers... Uh, we, we live, that as I said, half the world's population or so lives in the river basins formed by mountain glaciers. That's not an accident. When those glaciers go away, the value of living in those river basins will be dramatically lower. Where the people are is the same place the food is grown. Not exclusively, but half the world's population does some agriculture. That agriculture can get much more difficult. And that's not because the temperature and the rainfall in those places will change. It's because the water they get from the glaciers will change. And so it's true that... uh, Changing temperatures, rising global temperatures will mean places that, that get warmer and happen to get more friendly rainfall will grow a little bit more. It's true. That'll be offset by places that grow less. But more important than either of those things, it seems to me, is that we have built up our entire global civilization on the premise that the rivers will flow where they've been flowing for the last 250,000 years. Um, and that won't be true anymore. Let's talk about oceans. Uh Oceans are warming. They're becoming more acidic, and there are actually uh, some disease. Uh, there's some research that shows that there's some uh, foodborne uh, diseases because of, of warming oceans. Richard Jackson, tell us about warming oceans and, and potential human health impacts. Well, the big thing that scares me most about warming oceans is the expansion, the sea level rise. Um, our fisheries are, are really being depleted at a very rapid phase. There are certain organisms and fish that do pretty well. Jellyfish do quite well in acidic oceans, and we'll probably see more of fish that we don't like to eat very much. Um, so, and, you know, we doctors are telling people all the time, eat more fish, don't eat so much red meat. So uh, a lot of, we've been fairly, we've been very insensitive to the, we've taken it for granted, just as we've taken for granted the atmospheric ocean over our heads, the, the fluid ocean around us, we have also taken for granted. There are organisms that actually, the cholera organism survives more effectively is more effective in warmer waters than it is in colder waters. So we're going to see a change in some of these as well. And let's talk about sea level rise. We've seen from Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, this this surge and what that can do. Uh, It can basically uh, close the New York Stock Exchange for a couple days and and pour the Atlantic Ocean into the New York subway. Uh, I talked to a person yesterday who said that coastal retreat, moving back from the coast, is forget about health care or uh, in, uh, Social Security, et cetera. The cost of coastal retreat is going to bankrupt, could bankrupt this country. Pretty strong statement. Andrew Guzman? Uh, I don't know if that statement is true. It might be true. Uh, but it's, you know, it's... The underestimated magnitude of the impact yeah. of coastal I mean, relocation. It's a, it doesn't take a lot for things near the coast to go wrong. And this is true of... The most obvious thing is if you imagine your house on the edge of the water, obviously if the water goes up, that's a bad thing. Um, but it's true in other ways, too, because water systems can cease to work if the ocean gets too high, because instead of water going out into the ocean, water has this nasty habit of flowing downhill, and so it'll come inland instead. Agriculture systems can get backed up because salt water comes in instead of fresh water going out. Uh, so lots of things can get messed up, and, and it's certainly true that land can get lost. I don't know, uh, I confess I have not looked carefully at the 
geographic land loss likely in the United States for a credible rise in ocean. But it'll be some, and it'll be, you know, there'll be some in San Francisco, though San Francisco won't be the place that makes the news because it'll be worse than other places. Richard Jackson, you've written a lot about resilient communities. I've done a public broadcasting series on designing healthy communities. Four hours, and we had a town hall meeting at Lincoln Center about a month ago talking about the impact of Superstorm Sandy on the New York area. And we had a psychiatrist. We had a couple of high school students. We had an urban planner. We had a pediatrician. We had Paul Goldberger of the New Yorker and Jane Brody of the New York Times, a health reporter. And I completely underestimated, as a person, a Jersey boy who now lives in California, the psychological impact of Superstorm Sandy. People were still psychologically traumatized by the vision of seeing water pouring into the subways. And as a kid, we'd go to the Jersey Shore. The Jersey Shore was a poor man's paradise. I mean, I'm not kidding. You'd go down there, you'd put your feet up, and it was just heavenly to be there for a couple of weeks. That's all gone. All those houses are ripped up. They're going to rebuild the Jersey Shore, but they're going to build hardened condos 12 feet off the ground that no working person is going to be able to afford to live in. And I think these larger changes, we, we underestimate psychological impacts because it's the way we are. But believe me, they're just as important as these physical impacts. If you'd like to hear more about that, you can look at uh, in iTunes, the Climate One podcast, uh, which includes a conversation with former New Jersey Governor uh, Christine Todd Whitman, who was with us at Climate One recently, and the former governor of Colorado talking about fires and, and rebuilding, uh, living differently with uh, forests and also with the ocean. So on the, on the uh, psychological impacts, uh, we talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome. Is there a post-traumatic stress syndrome for climate-driven events? PTSD is far more common than we were told. We probably, every in the, in the room has some version of it from some very difficult event you had. You can manage it somewhat if you intervene between about 6 and 12 weeks. What happens is the brain sets up a certain repetitive pattern. So the psychological loop, the, if you will, the electrical loop begins to be mimicked in the neurons and the axons in the body. So there are things you need to intervene with a person going through post-traumatic stress. That said, Mindy Fololov, professor of psychiatry at Columbia, said, in truth, people will never get over this. And people that have been through hurricanes and floods will tell you 60 years later of the trauma of seeing all the family pictures and and the contents of their house being lost. So, And we tell people, you need to care about where you live. And then when it's gone, you say, oh, you don't need to care about that so much. Get over it. And this is going to be a very difficult thing that we're in for. What should California do to build resilient coastal communities, Richard Jackson? One is we sure shouldn't be building any place that a reasonable person would say, if you get a one- to two-foot sea level rise, it's going to be underwater. Um, Two is, and New York City is now proposing it, Mayor Bloomberg's proposed $16 billion of berms and gates and other things around Manhattan. Well, that's downtown southeastern part of Manhattan, and they're going to have to put a seawall that's going to go all the way around it. Well, they have to do that to keep the water out of there. But number two, it ought to be parkland. It ought to be recreation land. It ought to be bicycle routes. It ought to be things that for 99% of the time you can use and enjoy, and for the 1% of the time that it saves your life, be glad that it's there. So I think any kind of decision, the state of North Carolina now makes it illegal to consider in a real estate decision the fact that climate change is happening. And it's totally ridiculous, you know. 
If you're buying a house, you need to be, you're told if you're in an earthquake zone, you ought to be told if you're in a sea level rise zone. So yeah, they outlawed science. Okay, uh, Andrew Guzman. So, yeah. So um, after Hurricane Sandy, Mayor Bloom or recently Mayor Bloomberg has this idea. Uh, after Hurricane Sandy, I heard the mayor of Hoboken, New Jersey, speak about similar ideas. And my reaction to this is, if I'm the mayor of Hoboken, New Jersey, I, I say the same thing. But it's a terrible idea. Right? So imagine, imagine that the way we approach climate was this: the federal government said, "Okay, well we're going to apply, we're going to impose a climate tax. You're all, all your income taxes, a few dollars are going to go into this fund." And we're going to pay it out to local communities to build seawalls. This would be the stupidest strategy to combat climate change that you could imagine. Because the seawalls aren't going to stop climate change. They're going to be an incredibly expensive way to, in a minor way, dull the impacts of climate change for a small number of people. It's not going to stop food prices from going up. It's not going to stop water shortages. It's not going to stop drought. It's not going to stop most of the impacts. It will keep a few square miles safe from one thing. It is a crazy strategy. Now, I get that if, the, if there's a flood and the water's coming to your house and you've got sandbags, you're going to put sandbags in front of your house. I understand that. But the idea that we would adopt a public policy in which we would invest primarily or even heavily, frankly, in adaptation is a foolish strategy because as long as our emissions are growing especially as fast as they are globally. Um, there are no seawalls that are going to solve this problem. We, are, we might put off some portion of the damage for a brief period of time. We would be far better investing the same resources in reducing our emissions through any number of mechanisms. Um, and, you know, again, there's trade-offs. It's true that if you don't build a seawall somewhere, that place is a little more exposed. But if you use those re- resources in some other way to reduce emissions, you reduce the exposure of the other... Seven billion people on the planet. Richard Jackson. So the doctor a, and the arc, uh, economist are going to get in an argument right now. Oh, good. Yeah, which is about that, time. Uh, about time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in medicine, all the time, we know that every last patient's going to die, and we still go ahead and we do the best to get them through the next month, year, or decade of their lives, and, and make their lives as comfortable and reasonable as possible. Is Hoboken not going to be underwater in 100 years? You bet it's going to be underwater, and, and, and no seawall is going to turn it around. We need to do everything we can to prevent these long-term effects. We ought to be reducing our carbon pollution of the atmosphere. And by the way, we need to stop, stop saying CO2 loading and call it pollution because that's what it is, and methane, all the stuff coming out of the wells that we're fracking and all the rest. We need to get control over it and do what we can. On the other hand, People need to live somewhere, and we ought to be able to figure out ways that we can make their lives comfortable and work well as well. So, so that's all. Andrew Guzman, five minutes. So that's all true. And if there's no budget constraint, then let's cut greenhouse gases dramatically, and let's provide all of the adaptation we can. That's absolutely right. But if we have limited resources, which I posit we do, um, we have to make choices. And if you had in your patient example, if you have a patient who's exposed to radioactivity every day, you wouldn't say to that patient, "Here, take these." take this medicine that helps with radioactivity. You would say, get out of the radioactivity. That's what I'm saying is we can't put Band-Aids on these problems in the hope that an ever-increasing set of problems, right? That is, the problems get worse and worse, and I do it, my hand's moving up linearly, but in fact it moves up exponentially as temperatures go up, as average global temperatures go up. We can't put Band-Aids on this problem and think that as the problem gets bigger and bigger and bigger, we can just use bigger and bigger Band-Aids. We need to get at the emission of greenhouse gases and... To the extent we have a budget constraint, that should be the number one priority. Not because 
the harm that adaptation seeks to prevent is not important, but because we will prevent more harm with mitigation than we will with adaptation. But reducing greenhouse gases seems beyond the reach of even very powerful people in government uh, at the state or city level or even national level. And that seems beyond them. What is within their grasp is seawalls and things like that that they can get their arms around, cleaner power plants. And there's a term called manage retreat. And the idea, which you've been talking about, is basically manage retreat. We gradually pull back from the coasts and the rivers and cede some land to freshwater and rivers as, as that happens. But you don't, so the, the thing that I think most important to understand is that climate change is not a body blow that we have to absorb. It's turning the whole system upside down. And so if, if we can't retreat from 100 miles from the coast or 100 yards from the coast and then be done, right? we retreat from the coast and then the next day we're in exactly the same place we were the day before. Right. So we, we might postpone things and we might provide some protection. But as long as greenhouse gas emissions are growing, faster and faster every year, and the greenhouse gas concentration, which is now you know, tipped over 400 recently, uh, 400 parts per million, as long as that's going up, this problem doesn't go away. This problem gets worse and worse, um, and, and every, every incremental increase is worse than the last. The only solution is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's not that adaptation isn't useful or relevant. It absolutely can make a difference. It absolutely uh, can reduce harm, but I'd rather spend a dollar on mitigation than a dollar on adaptation. Andrew Guzman is a professor at UC Berkeley Law School. Our other guest today at Climate One is Richard Jackson, professor at the UCLA of uh, Public Health at UCLA. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, what do each of you do to manage your own carbon footprint? Richard Jackson? I think there are a bunch of things we can do, but I am ashamed of the fact that I fly on airplanes too much. So I'm just going to acknowledge that. Um, I think. Do you buy carbon offsets for that? I do. But um, I, I, it feels a bit suspicious sometimes about whether anything really happens. More for your that. conscience than anything really getting yeah, done. I mean, yeah, you know, I've, I've been guilty of that a few times. I think um, occasionally I like some red meat, but in general I'm trying to eat uh, very little of that. Um, I, I don't own a car living in Los Angeles. Um, I bike or use public transit at all times. I think California desperately needs a high-speed rail line so that people don't need to be in airplanes. It's about 20 times more energy efficient to move up and down in a high-speed rail line, as they've done in Europe, and we need to have it on the east coast of the United States. Um, I think we're just changing our house now and putting in uh, about R40 insulation. I know this is tiny stuff, but at least it's what I can do um, to make my own home energy efficient. We've changed out our appliances uh, for those that are energy efficient. I interviewed Paul Hawken once, and he said there's no such thing as inconsequential action. There's only consequential action, so little things matter. Andrew Guzman, what do you do to manage your own carbon footprint? I'm not, I'm not so far off, uh, both on the confession and in the other things. So uh, it's true that I fly uh, more, than I, more than would be ideal. Um, and it's a, it's a set of very familiar actions, m- many of which have been stated, and I bet the ones I add would you do as well. So uh, the, the one that strikes me is... Um, I'm most, most difficult is not the right expression, but I try to eat less meat, which because meat is a pretty bad source. Uh, heat the house less in the winter. You know, we live, I live in Oakland, so we don't have air conditioning. So I don't use air conditioning, but I don't really, I can't really claim much moral high ground for that reason. Uh, uh, try to drive less. Try, you know, I've got an old car, which uh, one of the odd things is, uh, you know, if you buy a car, then a, a more fuel efficient car, a hybrid car or something makes sense. If you have an old car, it probably makes more sense to keep the old car because 
takes a lot of energy to build a car, have an old car, uh, things like that. It's, it's, I, I, I've spoken at a couple schools about my book, and I get asked the question of what one should do. And the answer is pretty much the same environmental message you give anyway, which is uh, recycle, use less energy, use less water. So I try to do those things, but I feel the same way. It, it, feels, it feels important and yet inconsequential. Can I just stay with water? Because people run water, but 19% of all the electricity in California is used to move water. And so, Most of it's over the Tehachapi Pass going right, down south. Right, but it's still a huge amount of electricity. So anything we can do to um, minimize that use. I, I want to say one more thing because I teach a class on uh, built environment and health but also on climate change and health. And I am very sensitive about not depressing the hell out of my poor students because these issues are frightening and they're depressing. And I've seen a big change in the students in the last five to ten years the best and brightest are most of them are vegetarian. They're very, very aware of what they buy. They won't buy clothes that are made in a sweatshop. In fact, many of them do go out of their way to buy uh, used clothes uh, as well. My best students don't have cars. They bike or they walk or they use public transportation. They're extremely aware, and they know that they're not going to impact the world very much, but they at least want to feel in concert with their values, even if they're, they're not changing the world. Richard Jackson is a professor at the UCLA School of Public Health. Our other guest today at Climate One is Andrew Guzman, professor at the UC Berkeley Law School. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, I'll just tell briefly about uh, a time when I was on an airplane going back east, and uh, Virgin Atlantic, fabulous airline, and you can they have a screen in front of you. You can order a sandwich and a carbon offset. So I thought, okay, this is great. I'm going to a climate meeting. I order a sandwich, carbon offset, and a drink. <laughs> And the stewardess comes and says, I'm supposed to say flight attendant, and say, uh, okay, here's your sandwich, here's your drink, and I, I just can't find this other thing, carbon <laughs> offset. I can't see it. I'm like, don't worry, it's, 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 you know, it's just addressing my conscience. It's not, she's like, oh, you're the first person that's ever ordered that. <laughs> so much for that. Uh, let's have our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you for your thoughts today. So given the recent popularity of hydraulic fracturing, um, both the fact that it's taking place in 38 out of 50 of our states. Um, what are the known implications to human health? I've heard horror stories of what it does, the human body drinking water in one of these fracking zones. Is that true? Richard Jackson. Oh, boy. Um, one is methane is probably the best fossil fuel that we can use. This is the gas you get out of the hydraulic fracturing. Two is this water and fluids uh, and Sand, enormous amounts of sand are forced down these wells at pressures of 19,000 pounds per square inch or more. Um, there is an escape of methane into the atmosphere when this occurs. There is uh, release of these chemicals and polluted water into the ground. Big battles about whether that can be dumped into a local river or whether it's put into impoundment pan, uh, p- ponds as well. Industry argues that none of the flaming faucets that you've seen in the movies they did that it's from old wells from in the past. There are very different kinds of wells where, there's, where they're using old oil wells and trying to pull out distillate and real oil versus methane wells that they get from shale. The biggest thing, a couple things I worry about. One is it's stupid to stick these in between a home and a schoolyard, and there's, some of these are going in with absolutely no regulation. It should be regulated at the national level by the federal government. Right now we have an exemption under the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act that prevents 
that the fluids coming out to be regulated by the government. It's called the Halliburton exemption, and it was put in place in 2005. And uh, Gasland 2 is coming out soon on HBO. Uh, Gasland was a movie where mo- people first saw faucets being lit on fire, so uh, you can look for Gasland 2. Let's have our next audience question. Yes. Uh, thank you very much, by the way, for the wonderful program and the great uh, comments. I'm really finding it helpful. Uh, Professor Guzman, um, I'm a Cal graduate, and I'm very proud of, of Cal and usually or sometimes we manage to lead the way, and often it's the students uh, that do the leading, which is very interesting. So I noticed recently that the in the last student election, the ASUC elections, which were a couple months ago, uh, about 10,000 students participated, I think, plus or minus, maybe 12,000. They overwhelmingly voted to support a referendum that asks the university to divest its fossil fuel investments. And I applaud the students for doing that. Uh, and so the question becomes, uh, would you, as a faculty member, support that idea? And also, are other faculty members supporting that idea? So uh, yes is the first answer. Um, the, the rest of the answer is I'm not sure. That is, this is not something that, to my knowledge, has become... Uh, you're, what you're saying I agree with to the extent I'm familiar with it, but it doesn't seem to become an issue that faculty are discussing, which presumably means it's an issue that the administration is not currently pondering in a serious way. Um, the divestment question, I think, uh, you know, Bill McKibben is one of the driving forces between this. And as I understand his view, though I may, if I'm misrepresenting it, I apologize to Bill McKibben. Uh, but I think his view, which I would share, is it's unclear what consequence divestment has on, act- on, on the behavior of large companies. But it can't possibly do any harm to, to the effort of encouraging uh, uh, more climate-sensitive activities. Uh, and if nothing else, it's, it's a politically meaningful act. That is, it draws attention to the problem, which by its, if that's the only thing it does, it seems like it's worth it. When I interviewed Bill McKibben, he said, we're not going to morally bankrupt ExxonMobil. We're, we're not going to bankrupt ExxonMobil. We're going to morally bankrupt them. So it's symbolic. And let's have our next audience question at Climate One. Thank you. I have a theory about a significant greenhouse gas mitigation um, measure, and I'm looking for your comments and thoughts. Um, I know that green, uh, rainforest, deforest, rainforest destruction or deforestation uh, the greenhouse gases generated from that are almost equal to the worldwide uh, greenhouse gases generated from transportation. And my thought is, at least theoretically, if we could focus on eliminating deforestation, we would also, you know, help eliminate the number one cause of species extinction and also save one of the primary, you know, uh, CO2 absorbers on the planet. And just your thoughts. Do you think that's a valid theory or um, impractical or whatever? I mean, Andrew Guzman? I don't think there's any doubt that uh, deforestation is a big part of the problem. Uh, stopping deforestation has a bunch of challenges. Uh, one is very often the forests are being removed for a reason, like places for people to live um, or some other reason. But, but the problem that is more interesting intellectually to me is uh, deforestation, if it's happening in a country that is, uh, you know, Brazil is a moderately, you know, a sort of medium to medium upper income country, but it's not nearly as wealthy as Europe or the United States or Korea. Um, in a country that is less wealthy, de- stopping deforestation is expensive. 
And so there's a, there's a question about whether there's a sensible way to transfer resources from wealthier countries to poorer countries to do, to combat this or in other ways combat things that are contributing to climate change. And it would be terrific if we could find a good way to do that. The central problem in simple terms is what you'd like to do is you'd like to know how the country would behave if you didn't pay them off and then to the extent they behave better, pay them. But that how they would behave is is impossible to observe. So the country that you're trying to, let's call it bribe, uh, the country you're trying to pay has an incentive to represent that it was going to do all these horrible things and then get you to pay them to do what they would have done anyway, which deters the people who will, who may be willing to pay. So there's a kind of a difficulty in that arrangement. If it can be, if you can overcome that problem, it would be great because it probably is a reasonably cost-effective strategy if you can uh, keep forests intact. Or in a bunch of, there's a bunch of other things you can do uh, that would improve outcomes um, and that would probably be worth paying for in that way. So 10 years ago when I started talking about this, about 20% of the CO2 increase that we've had was due to deforestation. Uh, in, in my lifetime, the CO2 level of planet Earth has gone from 300 to 400 parts per million. I no longer can say it's 20%. It's now 10%. It's not because we're doing less deforestation. It's because we're producing so much more fossil fuel emissions. One of the Complete sucker bets, if you'll pardon me, is this planting of enormous amounts of land, deforesting it, and then planting corn and soy, particularly corn. The U.S. is importing corn ethanol, which from an environmental standpoint, from a health standpoint, from an energy standpoint, makes no sense. The other thing we need to do around deforestation, I really feel very strongly about this, is if you create urban spaces that people want to live in, that are safe, that function well, the pressure to have people move out of urban spaces is much, much less. And by the way, family size goes down as places urbanize. Carbon footprints, lots of good things happen when people move into the cities. Let's have our next audience question at Climate One. Welcome. Great. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, What do you each say to doubters, those who don't think it's happening? So... I think there's two, I think there's two categories of doubters, which is I think the nice word for it. Uh, one, one are people who, who have, uh, either a kind of com- a prior commitment that does not allow for, uh, reconsideration or that have a financial interest in being a doubter. And so those people uh, you can't talk to. I think the much larger population of, of people who are, who view themselves as skeptics, um, are people who either haven't looked at any evidence Um, And then to those people, you say, well, the theory of climate change is pretty clear. The uh, data on it, that is, the the increasing temperatures is irrefutable. And then look around the world. Uh, We can navigate around the polar, around the North Pole for the first time in hundreds of thousands of years. Um, So the physical evidence is there. And the last piece I use uh, to try to persuade them, my favorite, is pick uh, a university that you like, that you think is a serious elite university, Go to their website, write, type in climate science. You'll find something. Click on a few links, and you will very, very quickly, within three or four clicks, you will get to whatever's going on at that university. And it will be things like, how does blah, blah, blah reduce climate change? What is the consequence of blah, blah, blah on climate change? You won't see anything that looks like, is climate change real? Right? It just doesn't exist. So you've got to decide who you're going to listen to. And if you want to listen to people who are scientists and you go anywhere on the Internet where there's real scientists, this debate isn't happening that way. It's a settled issue. The question is what to do about it, and then obviously questions at the edges about lots of important things, but not about the fundamental question of 
Is it happening and are humans making it happen? Richard Jackson? So 40 years ago, people were arguing about whether smoking really caused cancer, and there was a huge um, smoke screen, if you will, put up by the industry saying, oh, yeah, the jury's still out. We don't know this is for sure. These same firms are then used by the lead industry to say lead is an essential element, which is not true. Um, when California actually, we moved our cigarette smoking from 140 packs per person to under 40 packs per person, we have saved $120 billion in health care costs by making these changes. And the doubters were paid doubters all the way through that. Um, I think this issue is the same one. You know, suppose we all go out, we have an efficient car, we save money, we have an efficient house, we uh, walk a lot more, we exercise, we're on bikes, um, we use more transit, we smile more, we get to know our neighbors, we grow food in the backyard, we have trees around our house, and it turns out we're wrong, and we got happy for no reason. I mean, <laughs> Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. What are your positions regarding desalinization plants? Andrew Guzman? Uh, so uh, we're, we're going to need more water, and it's just a, to me it's a matter of the economic efficiency of the process. Uh, there will be more desalinization than there is now because the value of it will go up. I don't know in detail how big that leap will be. Um, but to my mind, and it's possible I don't, I, there's something here that I don't appreciate, but to my mind it's just an economic question. It's um, at what point is it, is it cost effective to take the salt out of the water? It's clearly, sometimes that's true now. There is desalinization now. And there will be more when water is more valuable, more expensive. Um, but more expensive water is not a good thing, just to be clear. It's also you, very energy intensive to do that. You can throw a baseball, a good athlete can throw a baseball across the Colorado, Colorado River, which is supplying water, a third of all the water in Southern California. Um, there will not be enough water um, for just lots of reasons. And we're going to have to re capture all the water that's no longer going to be held up in the glaciers. So one of the big things that's going to happen is we're going to have to capture a lot more gray water, used water. And people don't want to think about it. And they say, oh, I don't want to drink out of the toilet. But it can be treated to the point astronauts drink their urine. I mean, we can treat water so that um, we can capture water. We no longer, your grandchildren, when you say, we used to water the plants and flush the toilet with drinking water, they're going to say, Oh, come on. Your next thing you're going to tell me people used to smoke on airplanes. So, um, you know, we've got to adapt to the 21st century. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi. Um, I'm curious, at what point or to, to what extent does adaptation exacerbate the emissions problem? You know, building cement walls to protect against water or uh, distilling water, that type of thing. I don't know. The idea that we yeah. can somehow build walls and go on with our addiction to fossil fuels. So, you know, every time we get out of bed in the morning, we contribute to the problem in a sense. Right? There's, everything we do emits greenhouse gas in one way or another. Um, so that's just part of the reality. But it's a fair point that so cement is a big, big source of greenhouse gases if you're building the walls with cement. Um, I'm not sure that that's, that would deter me if I thought adaptation was going to make a difference because... One of, the, one of the dilemmas that is always true is anything we talk about is a teeny contributor. So uh, if, uh, well, almost anything, right? So the, the American contribution uh, is about 16% of global greenhouse gases. The power plants that, that President Obama was talking about regulating collectively are something like 40%. So even if you shut all those down, which of course would mean we wouldn't have power, you'd still only be addressing whatever 40% of 
16% is 6% maybe. Um, right? So the numbers get small, and so you have to do things across the board uh, in order to be effective. So if, in fact, seawalls were to generate, to my mind, important, permanent, meaningful protections in a cost-effective way, I don't think that would stop me. Um, but it's true that if we, can, if we do things that require energy, we will be releasing greenhouse gases. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next question. Yes. Yes. Um, I've been focusing on what ABAG, the Association of Bay Area Governments, is trying to do locally, and I'm, I'm focusing on this question locally, and uh, particularly our communities of Arinda, what's happened in Danville, and um, they are trying to get building, um, new housing in a Fill in, infill in the uh, close to BART stations in the center of the towns, as opposed to building out further and further single-story homes with big lots. And I consider this a fairly enlightened area compared to some other parts of the country. But I'm amazed at the opposition, how strong it is, how organized it seems to be, how vocal it is, saying that this is a basically a communist plot. This is you know, because of UN resolution number, I don't know what. And, and, um, so I'm wondering if you have any, um, um, insights on this. I'm worried about it. We absolutely, absolutely need transit oriented development. Um, particularly when we're older, we have, uh, more difficulty getting around thinking we're going to forever drive cars and solve all of our problems that way is wrong. Every meeting in Los Angeles starts with the following statement. I'm sorry I was late. The traffic was stopped all the way along. When I moved to, when Disneyland opened in 1955, there were 7 million people in this state. There are 37 million people in the state, and the area is getting smaller with climate change and the rest. We have to have transit, and it's foolishness for Lafayette and Orinda not to have density nearby that people can walk either to the, sub, uh, the line and go to the city when they need to. I'm sorry, I feel very strongly about this one. And he used to live here. So, okay, Uh, we have time for one last question. Welcome to Climate One. That would be me. Um, I appreciated your comments tonight, and I appreciated the question that was put to you about actions you're taking to reduce your personal carbon footprint. And to me, there's a parallel question, and I just want to make a quick comment and ask a question about it. And that's that I sense a quickening of people coming together to take action, to try to shape policy, to try to stand up and say, we see it coming, we want to act. And I would, for me, I would say you can Google 350 Bay Area, a lot of activities happening, and the citizen climate lobby is another area, very constructive citizen action. I'm wondering if you have any comments on that role, because we need to take big, bold steps right now. If you have any favorite recommendations for us about how we join together in addition to doing things personally. Thank you. Uh, Richard Jackson? In, in, in the video series, I visited about 15 cities, and when you see change, it, and there's models for this, it's about 7% of the animals in a herd, the fish, the birds, begin to turn. They're often, and all of a sudden, the whole group begins to move. So don't be discouraged if 93% of the people think you're a crackpot. You're worried about the things that are really important, and I think this banding together and talking about things that are desperately important to our future is, is the absolute conversation we need to be having in our society. Andrew Guzman? So I think there's lots of uh, different groups that are doing great things. 350.org is the most 
obvious one um, and is a terrific organization, not least because Bill McKibben is the guy driving it. Um, and one of the things I've discovered with, the, with this book, talking to people, is just how much is going on locally in the Bay Area. Um, and all of which is terrific. I don't have favorites among the many things that are going on, but I think uh, I underappreciated when I wrote the book how powerful this bottom-up approach is. I think the changes are small in the same way that turning down your heat is a small change, or turning, I guess, down your heat is a small thing. But the message it can deliver by saying, well, look, we, we're able to reduce a city's greenhouse gas emissions, so it's not impossible, or we're able to, we're, we're able to communicate to a broader population what's at stake and what's going on. And that is, you know, all politics are local, as they say, that is how politics change. So I still think the answer is in Washington, D.C., but what I've come to appreciate is that uh, Washington, D.C. is more likely to get that answer from a, from a series of local efforts. And so all of these kinds of organizations are part of that process. And I'll mention two uh, local organizations. Cool the Earth is a, a group based in Marin for kindergarten through uh, eighth grade. They have in-school programs that they can come to your school, and it's about actionable things kids can do, get their family to do with measurable carbon reductions. Uh, the Alliance for Climate Education is based in Oakland. They've educated almost a million high school students around the country with presentations, with starting with do just one thing, specific actions that high school students can do. We have to end it there. I'd like to thank Andrew Guzman, professor of UC, uh, at the UC Berkeley School of Law, and Richard Joseph Jackson, professor at UCLA School of Public Health and former director of the CDC's National Center for Environmental Health. Thank you all for coming here today, and that's thank you for coming to Climate One. Thank you. Um, and...